welcome to Wisdom for Life, where we sit through philosophy to find practical advice that you can use in your everyday life. Hi, I'm Dan Hayes, and I'm joined by my co-host, Dr. Greg Sadler, and today we're talking about technology and the good life, and this is going to be a broad, broad topic, right? Yeah, it's kind of everywhere in our lives at this point, and it kind of hits on basically the full gambit of uh, philosophy from you know ontology to epistemology to uh, ethics it is the, the full gambit and we're only going to be scratching the surface here yeah and so we'll probably have to do additional shows about other facets of this so if you're listening and you particularly enjoy one of the discussions that we're having you might want to send us a a line and say, hey, let's let's have some more of this. But like 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 you were just saying, yeah, it pervades everything. I mean, nowadays we, we tend to say, oh yeah, the internet is everywhere. But technology for human beings is our our natural way of existing. It's it's not as if there's ever been a time when we didn't have any technology going on, right? Well, I mean, we could say that there was, but were we even fully human back then? Right. You know, one of the, the markers, I don't know if it even holds up in anthropology anymore, is that like, we're the tool making animals, even though we've now ceded that to a couple others as well. Yeah, they used to say homo faber, which can be translated as the human being as the smith or the, the, the crafter, right? Mm-hmm. And, you know, good it's, old Vulcans we are. Yeah, and it's interesting. In, in, in philosophy, there was a recognition already back in the modern period that technology is not just tools and artifacts that we have, that language itself is a type of technology. So Rousseau talks about this in some of his his discourses, for example. Yeah, and one of the the main things that makes us the, the top predator or the top species on the planet is our ability to really organize well and do things in groups that would never have been able to own by even small groups of uh, tribes, you know, up to maybe 200 people. And the, one of the ways that we do that is to have these stories and we can't really have good stories without really good language. Yeah, that's, that's, that's quite true. And so language is actually a good place to start with this. One of the bits of information I wanted to, to bring into the conversation right away is, well, where does this word technology come from? And as it turns out, it, it, it has its start not as technology, but as, you could say, technologists with Aristotle, who complains in his uh, Art of Rhetoric, techne is, is the word that he's using there for art, that the people before him, and we don't have any of their textbooks, the textbook writers, the technologoi, were only attending to one aspect of rhetoric. They were only paying attention to what he called pathos, meaning emotion. So they would tell you like how to get people riled up or how to get them scared or how to get them to feel uh, desire. And then you would get, it's sort of a stimulus response, right? You get them to feel the emotion. And then because they're feeling the emotion uh, through your use of language, they will have the output that you want. Like they'll, I mean, I suppose you could use it for selling widgets, but he also, I think, used it, talked about it, you know, using it to start wars or end wars or pick whatever you like. And so technology early on means something that you can use as a set of techniques to get something done. Mm -hmm. This also 
the whole idea of like Luddites kind of also comes back oh. to was it Plato or Socrates there is really anti-reading or like writing things down. Anti-writing. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And the, the reason was because he said that it would make us um, less able to use our, our memory effectively. And that's right. kind of true, you know. Um, to a certain extent. But like how much more could you have at your fingertips if you have a library in front of you than trying to commit that entire library to memory perfectly? Yeah, that's that's quite true. I mean – Think back to like when we were kids and you'd have to do your math class and the teacher would say, don't use a calculator. You know, you got to learn how to do it on your own. And one of the things that they would say is you're not always going to have a calculator with you. <laughs> Nowadays we do though, right? Yep, always. Yeah. I actually force myself every once in a while when I'm doing calculations to do them by hand so that I don't totally lose the habits that I built up and become totally reliant on my, my cell phone. I try to always do the tip in my head. That's a good way to do it. Yeah. 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 There, there uh, was, so this oh, go ahead. reminds me of, you know, continuing on from this, don't write things down and how we have books now. Um, but with the, our cell phones and the, basically the full uh, knowledge of the human race at our fingertips, you know, if someone from a hundred years ago were to have a conversation from basically anyone with a cell phone from now, they couldn't actually see them. Like they were separated by oh. a sheet. You'd think that that person from now would be the most intelligent person that they've ever talked to, but they're really slow to actually respond. Yeah. It's almost like a Turing test for a demigod, right? Yeah. <laughs> so, you can't see them in the other room, but somehow they, they know everything. Yeah. Right. And so the idea that we are becoming, to a certain extent, uh, in symbiosis with uh, technology itself and that our, our cell phones are our second brains. Yeah, you know, that's, that's an interesting way to put it because it's not just a symbiosis with the, let's say, the platform, the, the technology itself. It's also a symbiosis with the vast archive of stored information out there that right. we kind of swim in when we, when we want to. It, it, I will say this, though, and, and then I do want to come back to one other thing about, about Aristotle that I think is important about technology. Um, I noticed that my students, who now we're talking about no longer millennials, but the, the Gen Z, but this, this applies to, to millennials, too. They were supposed to be the digital natives that like knew technology inside and out and are totally comfortable with it. I noticed, though, that when it comes to many platforms and many artifacts, they they only know it at a surface level. So millennials. Well, yeah, and 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 you know Gen Z as well. Uh, I'm not saying that that boomers or or you know Gen Xers are necessarily whizzes all the time either. But the fact that we had to become acclimated, say, to using mobile technology or uh, web platforms or stuff like that, often means that we recognize what we need to know better than they do. So like when I'm when I'm putting together a really great online course in a course management system, many of them don't know how to use some of the basic functions within it. And I have to show them in class. Okay, here's how you do this. Here's how you do this. And I, I you know, I, I didn't do that at first because I just assumed since all the experts were telling us that they know all about this technology that they did. And then I would find out that they didn't know how to do basic things, you know? And, and There's still that divide between those who are curious and want to dig and those who are just, I'll take the, the things that are most apparent and easiest to grab. Yeah. And, you know, culture is something that we have to acquire through work. 
you know, it's not something that we can just take for granted because we belong to a particular generation or, you know, particular culture or anything like that. It's something that we, you know, the German word for culture is Bildung. And it's a nice way to talk about it because it, it has this uh, sort of, you know, connotation of you have to build it up. You have to develop it. Um, is the word for build also very similar? Bauen. Um, so it's it's got a, at least a couple letters the same, but it's not the same root, you know. Yeah. Coming back to Aristotle, one of the things I wanted to bring up about technology is technology, a lot of people portrayed as, well, it's totally value neutral and, you know, you can do whatever you want with it. It could be used for great evil, like if you're an evil scientist and, you know, the, the comic books. But we can also do these wonderful things for it so we can, like, change the world to make it a better place, like all the commercials tell us when they're for the big tech companies. Aristotle had something really interesting to say about what we nowadays call technology. Uh, you know, Aristotle was from a slave society, and he gets a lot of flack for saying that some people are natural slaves, and that's a whole different discussion that we, we could have. It turns out that very few people are natural slaves, according to Aristotle, properly read. But one of the things that Aristotle did say that <clears throat> I think reveals the promise of technology, he talked about the, the slave or the servant being the ensouled tool, the, the tool that can actually, like, operate other tools. And then he said... If a loom could weave itself, ah, then we wouldn't have to enslave anybody. Nobody would ever have to like be in that power relation of having somebody else telling them what to do and you know uh, all the other bad things that go along with it. Now, we live in this amazing world that Aristotle, if he were to step into, he'd be like, holy, you know, look at all this stuff that like does things on its own. You know, you talk to your phone and say, uh, hey, Google or hey, Siri, or and sometimes it actually gets things right. And Aristotle <laughs> would say, well, I guess you don't need a personal assistant. You know, we don't actually need um, people to, I mean, in, in the near future, we're going to have like, um, automated, car, not not just cars, but over-the-road trucking, right? Mm -hmm. So we're not going to need all these CDL drivers. And, it's going to be a big problem. Yeah, and, and there, there's downsides to that. But, but it's also, you know, a profession that's kind of dangerous and hard on people's bodies and doesn't pay that well anymore. So, you know, there's this so promise this, of, of yeah. like, we're going to have a, a – because of the technology that we have, we're going to eliminate – power relations that that put people at disadvantages i don't think that happens at all <laughs> of course well and and uh robot is i, I want to say it's slavic yeah slave it's czech yeah czech. It, and okay. it means slave exactly yeah yeah, yeah. um as well as it, it kind of reminds me of going to the jewish tradition of the golem oh yeah um, a, you know you write instructions on a on a piece of paper and you stick it in the golden's head and it starts going and it does the things but the question is at what point in time do we need to uh, have worry about the rights of these automated systems? At what point do they become so uh, sophisticated, sophisticated and, yeah. yeah, that we need to actually think about them in the way that we think about humans? And so now you're right back to the very beginning of this problem about like having a slave or not, if you're talking about Aristotle here. Yeah, and, and, and that's where the world of speculative fiction, I think, can be quite helpful think about asimov's robot series both both for for two reasons one is the you know three laws of robotics which maybe we'll actually use who knows um 
But then there's also like the robot rights movement in it. And why, why can they have rights? Because they're sentient. But they're, I mean, you know, animals are sentient too. They're not just sentient. They are self-referentially sentient. They're able to take Conscious. positions. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and you want to go really far flung, go into Ian M. Banks, the culture series. Oh, yeah. With AIs that are super sophisticated and do, and I think, have rights, right? Oh, absolutely. They're, they're equal citizens. Um but they're also significantly more intelligent. And so you're like, why do they keep around the humans? But apparently they like them. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. I've, uh, I've only read so, a, a few of those books, but I, I've really enjoyed them. Oh, they're, they're great. As well as if you're have any interest to try to figure out what the heck, uh, Elon Musk is thinking, read those books. It has, uh, <laughs> That's rocket ships. It's got, uh, automation. It has neural laces. It's got, uh, was called uh simulations within simulations within simulations all these things that are kind of like off the wall that he talks about they're all in these books and i'm like oh i see where he got it banks has been gone for quite a while too right? yeah yeah he died so. in the late 90s interesting you know i i wonder you know this reminds me that we're almost totally off topic at this point but it does mm-hmm. tie in with technology um you think about william gibson William Gibson's Neuromancer, and then the others in in that that series, Mona um, Lisa Overdrive and Count Zero. That's right. Yeah. So they 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 set out this world of the early depiction of the internet, and it turns out things were completely different than than what he imagined. Um, yeah. There's no thing wireless. Yeah. Well, and and you know, um, viruses don't things. work the way that that he was portraying them and all that. But it was a very imaginative world, and they they interviewed him to ask him, well, were you like you know an early tech adopter and all that? He's like, I don't like any of that stuff. <laughs> I, I stay away <laughs> from it. I was just like pouring this out of my imagination, you know. And yeah. it's you know it's, it's quite interesting to, to think about how th- that those early those early narrative constructs about what the net was going to be like shaped so many things, um, even though they're by somebody who, who willfully withdrew from quite a bit of that technology. So you had something on Heidegger you wanted to share with us. Yeah, so Martin Heidegger, uh, and I, I think you could look at other authors as well who are saying similar things. There's, there's just a couple things from his, his ideas that I thought are useful for thinking about technology. One was um, he points out that that when we're using technology, we're often not that aware of it. And I think this is an important lesson for us. We, we want to develop more awareness. He thinks that we typically, he uses the example of a hammer. And a hammer's technology, right? We, we're using the hammer. We're nailing things along. We're, 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 everything's going great. And then, like, something gets screwed up, like the, ha- the handle breaks or, you know, the heads, you know, twists a bit. Now we look at it for the first time. And we do something very similar with our other technology, right? So right now, you and I are using um, several different bits of, of technology. And unless we're actually paying close attention, we don't care about it at all. As yeah. soon as something goes wrong, we're like, what is happening with Audacity? Or what's going on with Google, <laughs> Google Sheets? Or what, pick whatever you want, all the way down to the stopwatch. Why did the stopwatch stop? And now we become curious about it and start attending to it in, in a, a real way. I think he's completely right about that. And that means that we would need to 
try to overcome that tendency. And it's always going to be to some degree forcing ourselves to pay attention to what is actually happening with the technology that we're using. So we're no longer just like a fish swimming in the, the water. We actually pay attention to the water. Um, the other thing that he said that I, I think is helpful, and again, many other people have said things like this as well, is that there's a tendency when we allow ourselves to be sucked into a certain mentality with respect to technology in looking at the world as if it's all tech, as if like people can be understood as tech. So, you know, you see people saying things like, oh, you know, um, your operating system isn't isn't working right, uh, you know, uh, talking about somebody's oh, yeah. thinking, yeah. right? And the idea is, well, we'll just reboot you. Or, you know, we use all of this metaphorical ideas and language that pertains. Well, Go ahead. Throughout history, like we've always used the most recent technological innovation as mm. a, a way to uh, shorthand ourselves to understanding. There's, there's yeah. great old, uh, like, things of clockwork humans and, or like steam engine from, and like right right from from you know you know centuries back and, and like whatever is the news like oh yeah it's just like an engine or whatever yeah and, and every time we advance in our technology our new analogies become the newest technology yeah and so so heidegger thinks that in the, the late modern period we're in a kind of dangerous situation where we're too successful with our technology where we could in fact think that Say the brain is just a big computer, or you know we can we can reprogram society just like we would reprogram a neural network or something like that. Mm -hmm. You know, and he he calls this you know this conception of things uh, by a bunch of different names, but one of the terms that he uses is standing reserve, where we see things essentially as mathematizable um, resources that we can then in some way extract or mine or exploit and, and reconfigure in homogenous ways. And I, I think that this is, you know, we don't always have to use Heidegger's language with this, but I think that we do see a lot of people within not just the tech industry. I don't want to make them into the, the big um, baddies in this, but maybe <clears throat> let's say all the other industries that use tech. Um, tend to look at things that way and they tend to promote that, that view. So think about social media, which is something we're going to be talking about shortly. Um, there's, there's a tendency, I think, to look at other people in social media as if they are resources to be exploited for views, clicks, um, ad revenue, you know, pick whatever you, whatever you want. And, and to some degree it's true. But the danger is that of reducing people to that. And once you reduce someone to non-human status, it allows you to do a lot of things that would be abhorrent to do exactly. Human. Yeah. The more yeah. that you can like you know, uh, abstract away the human, the easier it is for you to exploit the human. Yeah. So and we we started out with this title, "Technology and the Good Life," and you might say, "Well, where's the good life in this so far?" Right. <laughs> so part of what we want to suggest is that there's some temptations, traps, problematic aspects about technology that we have to be attentive to, not to be social critics and, and, you know, cynics and say, oh, it's all terrible. You know, we should go back to when, you know, things were better before people carried all those cell phones around and we're looking at them all the time, you know, or pick whatever other example you want. Right. But you we, 
Exactly. Well, I think there's a lot of varieties of Lud- Lud- Ludditeism, what do we say? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and, and the one, Luddite diaspora. Yeah, and one Luddite might not be satisfied with what another Luddite wants. So, like, I, I'm cool with, well, we should get rid of the cell phones. And you're like, well, if you're going to get rid of the cell phone, you should probably get rid of the phone phone, you know? <laughs> <laughs> you're not a real Luddite. I mean, it goes – eventually the, the – the natural progression of that, I guess, is being back in caves again. And, you know, maybe fire is a technology, so we don't even use that. And then it's all over very quickly. Right. Then. Um, but, you know, we want to have something positive that we're leading towards um, when we're thinking about technology as well, because technology does have all these great potentials for making our, our lives better in, in, in many ways. Yeah, and so I see like, in Stoicism and also like Aristotelianism and all the, the virtue ethics places, there's definitely this idea of it's not the, the thing that's in itself that is a good. Yeah. It is the way that you use it is the actual good thing here. And a lot of these technologies have incredible uses, but they also have these downsides. And you can use them for good or bad, and you need to know where the pitfalls are. And part of that is... Uh, how do you choose which things that you you are capable of dealing with? What you have to know yourself to a certain extent to be able to find those limits for yourself and to uh, know what your ground truth of what is actually good is in order to use those tools properly. Yeah, that's 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 a great way to put it. Um, and there's also a communal aspect to it. So if I'm too immersed in technology and you're say my roommate well you're probably going to get pretty immersed in technology as well so how i do things on my own has implications for for you for you know my fellow colleagues children pick whoever you want right so um i guess when we talk about technology we want to know like who does it serve and what purposes do it serve and also what do we want to keep for ourselves as humans or rational creatures and yeah. what do we want to offload onto that technology so that's a good reminder what what values do we have to keep in play and keep coming back to what would you say is most important um we've got oh definitely Privacy seems to be a perennial one. It goes back and forth. Um, you've got uh, autonomy. Yeah. Uh, is that controlling me or am I controlling it? Um, as, as comes into also agency. And am I making the actual decisions for myself or am I letting something else take that? And um, I don't know, the, the social connections that we make and how we deal with those in a really hopefully positive way. And if am I the one making the decisions to make these connections or is that something just given to me? Yeah. You know, it's, it's interesting because you brought up the Stoics. I'm reminded of Epictetus um, who not only says that, you know, we should distinguish between what's actually in our control and what's, what's not within that sphere of control. But, but says if you, if you're trying to seek things that are outside of your control, like trying to make a million dollars, um, which is possible to do, but you know you've got to do a lot of other things along the way that you might might find a little unsavory in many cases to do that. Um, you're placing yourself sort of in servitude to the thing that you're desiring. But then he also says, 
if somebody else controls the thing that you desire, you become a slave to them. And, and I think technology provides all sorts of ways in which that can happen. If, if what I really need, we were talking about this before the show, you know, if I really need dopamine rushes and Facebook can figure out how to exploit that, I'm, 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 you know, screwed at that point, right? right. I, 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 they, I am in their power. I don't actually have much autonomy. Uh, and we could come up with I think, a lot of other examples along those lines as well. Yeah. And so speaking of Facebook and dopamine, kind of okay. brings us to the idea of, of Skinner boxes, otherwise known as operant conditioning chambers, uh, made famous by B.F. Skinner, that's the, the Skinner box, which was uh, basically the original experiment, if I remember correctly, is either a mouse or a rat in a box, and there's a light, uh, the light goes on, and if the mouse hits a button, when the light goes on, it gets a treat. Yeah. And and so it could get it to always hit the button, um, and it just, like, train it. And so you, and but they were able to actually detect the dopamine levels in the uh, mouse um, when the light goes on. And it wasn't the... Uh, the getting the treat that got them the dopamine, it was just the, the light going on because it was the expecting. Yeah, you create like a pattern, right? Uh, yeah. Which eventually becomes a habit. And... and so you think of your phone and those nice little, you know, jingling uh, bells and whistles. And I sound so old right now. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, your, your alerts and the, the flashing lights are, are all like things that are like very stimulating. They give you that uh, dopamine hit. It's very similar to like a lot of how uh, casinos uh, set up their things. You know, it's like, ooh, lights and pretty things and noises and sounds that are designed specifically to um, keep you getting that little dopamine hit and, and staying there longer. Yeah. You know, I think back to when I was a kid and we had these games that, from the present perspective, were just garbage, total wow. garbage. You know, you think about the Atari system and how pixelated and blocky the games were and how primitive they were. And then the handheld games that had buttons on them and little LED things, like you could have football or soccer, pick whatever you wanted. And somehow you had to, like, use your imagination to see, like, okay, this is a this is a person making a pass, you know. <laughs> and, and we would sit there and play these – we would play those games until the battery ran out. Why? Because there was exactly that same sort of loop. It doesn't even have to be, like, a good game. Mm-hmm. It can be some some game that, from the perspective of even not just the present, but like 15 years ago, it, th- these games were just awful. Uh, I mean, there are people who play them kind of in a retro way now, you know, to to, to, to get back into it. But they they weren't they weren't really any good. And the arcade games were the same way too. <laughs> it's like yeah. they think about Space Invaders. People would sit there and pump quarter after quarter after quarter into it, you know. So there's definitely something to it. What's that? <laughs> That's called a game loop. That's a, the, oh, okay. The main thing that happens is is the game loop, and it's like like um, oh, challenge reward, challenge reward. And you can put more things into it, but like that's kind of like the basic idea. Yeah. And how you set that up in order to get people to continue playing your thing. Um, and so cell phones are great at these like being conditioning, and we get these little dopamine hips. And they also allow us this connection, as we said, to text uh to knowledge and to social networks and whatnot but they also have like lots of potential uh privacy downsides like privacy concerns about your data um some people think that they're uh 
spying on you, like Ed Word Snowden talks about, like he always, whenever he gets a new <laughs> uh, cell phone, he comes in and he pulls out the the microphone chips. Yeah. He doesn't uh, trust them, you know. As well as most of them have GPS monitors and uh, or GPS chips in there. Yeah. Which, you know, if the CIA fifty years ago would say everyone in the world has a, a phone on them that has a microphone and a GPS chip, yeah, they would be elated. And now yeah, we just yeah. have them on us all the time. And if you propose that to the general populace 50 years ago, they'd be like, this is tyranny, you know. But, right. but if you can say, well, you know, it helps you f- drive your car around, you know, <laughs> or, or check in, you know, if you want to, like, uh, be on Instagram and tell people where you are, you know. I, I got to be the, the mayor of McDonald's. Exactly. And it, it, that was in, like, uh, what was Four that? Square. Four Square. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> um, yeah, that, so, I mean, those are some 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 great examples of, of problematic aspects. There, you can also say that there's a habit in just reaching for your phone, right? I mean, there's a lot right. of people who can't. Well, they they deal with anxiety that way, or whether it's you know like regular anxiety about things or the social anxiety of being in an unfamiliar place. One of the things they do is reach for their phone, start looking at it. Now they they feel. A little bit better. There, there's even people who like pretend to look at it and don't don't actually look at it. Oh, and then there's also people with uh, phantom ringing. They they think it's vibrating in their pocket. It's not actually because they've been so conditioned. <laughs> I guess I must be that way because I've had that happen to me. <laughs> yeah, it's common. And so, um, kind of brings us to social networks. Yeah, and social networks are also this like dopamine box of of constant trying to keep you there. And the early designs were just like, how do you keep the people on the site and engage as much as possible? And is the that main why, reason is, was, is that why some of the networks didn't work? They, they, they died out. They didn't do that well enough. You think? Or? Yeah, I, I absolutely think so. Uh, you know, and, and Facebook definitely figured out that, that good loop of trying to keep people there engaged constantly. And the whole idea was that they're trying to, you know, sell more ads, the more time the people are on the site, the more that they could sell their ads for and the more data that they could pull up. And now, you know, data is the new oil. Yeah. Um, but that's a whole nother topic. Um, but the problem is that these same systems that are designed to have you stay there as long as possible results in really negative behavior and, uh, mental states for those users. Yeah. So something that's, I mean, you could, I don't even know you can call it an unintended consequence because maybe the big tech companies knew about this and they're like, well, we don't care, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, but you've got something that's happening on the large system level that then affects each of the people participating in it. If they, if they aren't careful, if they don't adopt a more, what would we call it? More vigilant attitude or mindful attitude towards the technology that they're using yeah and this this comes back to the, the main topic here is like we're talking about a lot of things that seem to be negative but the idea is that you need to be aware of these things in order for you to actually make informed choices about what you're going to be doing you have to be wise in order to do you know the the temper the courageous thing here to actually maybe curtail these actions or or uh, work work within the network within a certain way right right um like for example facebook is really great for sharing memes that express your political opinions and denigrate other people um who you're opposed to but maybe that's not a good idea 
maybe maybe that's They're very not a, reductionist. Yeah, maybe that's maybe that's te- you know a thing that feels good at first, but is actually bad for you if you if you keep on doing that. Whereas there could be other uses for Facebook that could be much more positive, right? Could be, and, and you know, there's been lots of studies. I don't know if they're totally conclusive, but uh, of the increased polarization within our country is mm. at least. Uh, partially could be attributed to these social media that have, um, at least in the past, uh, reduced the amount of uh, other people's political opinions. Because if you see people that are arguing with you, then you're less likely to stay on. So the the more that you see that everyone agrees with you, the more that you want to be there. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, and so a part of this also is that like once they added that like, like or upvote, um, thing it really hijacks our our social approval centers in our brain and so it kind of comes back to like we developed as as these small tribal groups and to be in the tribe is to live if you're ostracized and you're uh, yeah. kicked out then you there's a good chance that you're going to die without the group and so in order to make sure that you have that same feeling you have to have approval from the group and if you're in the social media where everyone can see you and everyone can give you immediate reactions to oh i like that or dislike that that will really quickly um tune in what you think is acceptable for your group but the group is you know, could be the entire internet. And how can you know if that is actually the group that you want to be with? Yeah. Do you think it makes any difference? You know, Facebook a while back rolled out their, you didn't just have like, you've also got, you know, the heart, the angry face, the um, sad face. You know, LinkedIn has a similar thing where there's like five different things. Instead of just the like, you can do celebrate, curious, and I, I don't remember what the other ones are. Do you think it makes any difference, or is that just like variations on a theme? Uh, I, I want to say it's just variations on a theme. Like the same, the main concept is still there embedded. I think Instagram actually took away um, people liking. Like, it doesn't show you how many people liked it anymore. Mm. Uh, which seems to be counterintuitive to most social networks, but yeah. Um, well, yeah, Instagram think- is an interesting one because, in in a certain way, they have the worst users in, in this respect. <laughs> they they will, in order to get a good shot, they will do all sorts of things in the outside world, the non-digital world that they're taking mm-hmm. pictures of and then posting that we would consider to be bad behavior. So like there was there was some um, at one time it was the thing to take pictures of you in front of sunflower fields. And I, I heard this story at one point, I think on NPR about all these Instagram people going out to sunflower fields and essentially destroying the crops in order mm-hmm. to get good shots. And it was almost like a feeding frenzy, you know, people right. out of control um, or at least portraying themselves as being out of control so they could engage in antisocial behavior that, that, you know, not only affects other people badly, but, I mean, you think that's also kind of damaging to your own character to be so in need of the, the perfect Instagram post that you got to do bad things, you know? Yeah. And I think we should leave the social networks behind and try to hit on automation here. Yeah, now why that, that particular topic? What's so important about that? Because... Th- of the things that are coming down the pipeline, I think this is one that is going to upend our society in the most salient ways or the most, you know, overarching ways. Okay. You know, we touched on the idea of uh, automated trucking earlier. Yeah. And uh, was it, there's 
in many states, or actually in the majority of the states, trucking is the number one profession. Hmm. Um, as well as there is a whole other network of um, small towns in in the, the plains and whatnot yeah. that are basically entirely dependent on the trucking and the truck stops that service them. And once you get rid of trucking with humans then you get rid of these service stations yeah. and there's a whole like section of our economy up to like 10 to 15% of our economy that is just gone. Yeah. You know, it's interesting when you think about that, those places are also ways in which human beings interact with each other. You, you know, you, you drive in with your load, you park somewhere, you go take a shower, go get something to eat, maybe see some people chit chat with them, you know, at the restaurant. Um, that's all going away. Right. And there, there's so many other things that have gone away. I mean, I re, I'm old enough to remember when you didn't pay at the pump for gas, when you had to go in and actually interact with a human being. And then all of that came along and we were like, well, this is really convenient. Now I don't have to talk to anybody and I don't have to like, you know, count my change or anything. I just put the credit card in and now, now I'm out of here. This is so nice. But it also really reduced one major way in which people interacted with each other. Yeah. And so like, the automation is this double-edged sword. It has the potential for incredible gains or it has the potential to uh, significantly curtail our freedoms as well as our material yeah. wealth going forward. And there's a, a short story from many years ago. I read it like a decade ago called Mana, um, which is a whole story about like the slow creeping in of automation and AI um, to basically all sectors of the economy. And there were two societies that arose from this. One society was a, a very um, private property. Corps or individuals owned basically all the automation, all the property, and everyone else became basically uh, technological serfs. Yeah. Uh, and you, if you went below a certain rating, then you were unemployable and, you know, basically had to live on just the meagerest of substance of living and and then there was another uh society i think it's that uh, popped up in australia um where the automation was uh basically owned collectively and the everyone got to use the the fruits of the automation labor and turn into a post-scarcity society yeah and, and you know you mentioned ian banks earlier the whole culture um premise is that humankind goes out to the stars and we, we have this post-scarcity society for the most part in, in what, what's called the culture. Um, and then there's always like the intersection of, of that trillions and trillions of people living in that, that culture. And then the, the rest of the, the universe where um, things are less predictable and, you know, that's where, where they, the good stories actually happen. Yeah. And, and now it's interesting because when we think about where we could be headed, which which utopia or dystopia do we want? So a post-scarcity society, one of the dangers of that, well, what the hell do these people do? Do they sit around playing games all day? You know, is it like what Marx depicted where you work for a couple hours in the morning and then go fishing and then, I don't know, study something? I don't remember exactly how the quote goes, but that was, you know, he was depicting what things are supposed to be like later on. Or Star Trek where, like, 
you know, you you try to pursue exactly. either arts or like I'm going to be part of Starfleet because then I get to explore and well, and Starfleet do cool stuff. Starfleet is interesting because they're the ones where, like you said, things happen, right? Yeah, uh, the, the the messy stuff. Whereas you get the idea in the rest of the um, Federation. Yeah, you work on your thing and life is pretty easy. Now, I don't actually see us heading towards that, unfortunately, because of the kind of uh, social organization that we have. And so it seems much more likely that, like you said, those who own the robots, they're going to make out great. And then what do we do with, you know, what do we do when we hit 40% unemployment and we don't have anything for these people to do? They're, you know, they're, are they just going to be happy sitting at home playing video games and eating chips? Or are they going to want to stir up stuff to have, like, a feeling of being alive? And mm-hmm. uh, I'm a little bit worried about that myself. <laughs> yeah. Have you ever read uh, Player Piano by Kurt Vonnegut? I believe, yeah, a long time yeah, ago, so I don't remember it that well. Tell, say why, but, why it's... It's a basic idea. They just automate all the, the factories, and there are certain people who are engineers um, who basically are run maintenance on the factories, and... Uh, and then everyone else is giving like a really subsistence lifestyle, like yeah. It's like this, but no one has any purpose, and so then they they rise up to destroy the automation, but immediately go back to automating after they destroy the automation. Yeah, there's kind of a cycle to it, right? Yeah. I mean, we see a similar thing when people are railing against technology. They they often use some sort of technology to do that. <laughs> so. I guess yeah. the question is, like, what is the pursuit of a good life? Is the pursuit yeah, of the okay. good life more material things, or is it something else? And can, as long as, like, there's definitely, like, we, we gain some, I don't know, a prestige from, like, doing special and great things and competing to a certain extent, but does that have to be in a, uh, a means or a, a monetary or, like, you know... Uh, Social status, yeah. S- or, but social status was something I think would still maintain, especially like great artists have social status, but it's it's no longer just the whoever can make the most money now has social status. Yeah. So, uh, technology, um, in the in the sense of automation and and all the other things that go along with it, AI, logistics, you know, all all these things converging together, is threatening. You know in ways that we can't quite wrap our head around, I suppose. Yeah. This is, this is, this is what um, Gabriel Marcel called human beings being at the mercy of their own technics, you know, um, similar to Heidegger. Well, it's, it's similar to, to Heidegger's view that when we, when we, it's not just a mindset that we have, we actually do create the technology and then the mindset and technology kind of go together and they, they, assume more and more forward inertia, you could say. And at a certain point, we we lose not just oversight, but actual control over where things are going. And, and, and I think this is facilitated by all the people who are like tech optimists, who are like, oh, technology is going to make everything perfect and, and everything is going to be wonderful. They don't know what they're talking about most of the time. They're, they're selling us this line, you know. Um, I mean, can we really rely on Google to follow its, its one ethical principle of don't be evil? I don't think so. Oh, it, <laughs> it, it, it threw that away a long time ago. Yeah. So, uh, so this, you know, go ahead. This reminds me of, of basement code. And so basement code 
is a term for that code, which no one ha- knows what the heck does really anymore. Oh. Where they might know what it does, but they don't know how it does it. Yeah. And the guy who made it is long gone. And if you try to remove it, everything breaks. Or if you try to like edit it at all, everything breaks. And and look at most of our banking system in the United States. It's all built yeah. on COBOL servers, which is an ancient language. Um, like in technology terms, it was you know it's sixty years, seventy years old at this point in time, um, and it's it's rather slow and it's rather arcane in its uh the way it's written. And uh, if we didn't have those servers running this ancient cold, our entire economy would run to a halt immediately. Yeah, yeah, and and you know um. I think things are at the point where nobody can really understand <clears throat> even the like cutting edge codes that they're using. Nobody can totally wrap their head around what they're doing. Uh, well, I don't okay. mean just I, I don't mean just like the project that they're working on. Yeah, but oh, no, the, the the entirety of yes, I would agree with that. Yeah, um, and then you also have uh, AI or not uh, machine learning specifically, which is a subset of AI. Which yeah. is, it's a black box. It's it's the, the, the little dark secret of computer science is that the, you can't go and just change a line of code in a uh, machine learning uh, matrix and yeah. or neural net. And, uh, and you have to like retrain things. You don't know exactly why these things do it, um, but we know it works and it works reliably. <laughs> yeah. So there's a pragmatic motif there, right? Yeah, um, and we're getting a lot better at like poking the box and getting it to do th- more and better things more reliably. Um, but, but to go in and like know how exactly it is doing it is not well well knowable. And and it's interesting. You know, I, I think the learning in machine learning is is really metaphorical. Um, but if we want to go ahead and use that term, I think we also have to say that whatever machine learning is taking place that we're seeing, there's also all sorts of other learning that we're not conscious of and we won't see the effects of until like, you know, we're in a new situation and suddenly the the AI starts behaving in a, a very different, but probably in some respect creative way that we might not entirely like. You know? Right. So, you know, and, and I mean, there's all sorts of great speculative fiction work about this where, you know, like the computer realizes that we human beings are rather inefficient and, you know, maybe we should get them out of the way or, you know, modify them in certain ways, <laughs> you know, predicts or what our paper clips. Exactly. Well, it, or it desires, you know, it knows what our desires are better than we do. At least it thinks it does. And then, then mm-hmm. there's nothing we can do about it. I mean, this is we're getting um pretty far afield how do we bring this back to like the day-to-day existence that we have so that we can keep using the technology that we we have but do it more um so kind of looking at this uh going back to automation specifically because that's the topic we're on um and i do want to uh plug that the, the short story mana is by marshall bryan um but it kind of makes me think of the you know, rawlsian theory of justice and his uh, specifically okay. his idea of maxi-min. And so the idea is that uh, if you were to create a society, um, he believes that if p- 
people didn't know what position within the society society that would make they would make a society in which the lowest person on the society had the um maximum uh material wealth basically yeah. and so it didn't mean that everyone had to have the same material wealth there could be certain people that had lots more wealth than others but only if that produced a society in which the minimum level had a uh, the highest amount of minimum. Yeah, so saying that, you know, brings to mind the idea that's been kicked around quite a bit recently. And I, 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 I'm kind of hoping we someday see in our future of a universal basic income. Um, now, some people, I mean, there's always people, who are, how are you going to pay for that? Well, I mean, Stop having as many wars, maybe, or that would be pretty easy to do, right? Stop, we could probably root out some government corruption and pay for it quite easily as well. But there is one objection that people bring up that I, I think is, I don't buy it, but I think it needs to be engaged. And here's how it goes. So if you give people a universal basic income, it probably needs to be something good. It can't be just a thousand bucks a month, because what can you do with that in, in our society, right? Um, I mean, spend more than half of that on rent, probably, where we live. Um, <clears throat> so let's say it's, you know, it's quite generous. Then aren't people just going to become lazy and complacent and expected as a dole? And won't it lead to a society which is stratified into those They'll, they'll still be those who like own everything, but there'll be those who work to support everybody. And then there'll be those who just live on the dole um, and their lives won't be all that um, productive. And and that's not good for them. And it's also not good for others because it, it creates resentments. And, you know, what, what, what do you, I, I think there's good answers to that. What do you think is a good answer to that? Uh, good answers like. The alternative is we have automation, we have 40-60% of the population without jobs, and would you rather have 46% uh, of the people with no jobs and are hungry and are rioting in the streets and destroying everything? Yeah. Or do you want uh, to make sure that everyone is uh, like at least healthy and well-fed? So this is sort of one of those let's not th let the perfect become the enemy of the good sort of things, right? R right. Yeah. Do you have any others? I don't. I don't think that. I. I kind of hope that. Um, although there will be some people who would just take advantage of it and, and basically do nothing all day. I kind of think and hope that there would be a lot of people who would use that time and, um, you know, freedom from fear, to work on themselves, to to engage in study of, um, whatever it is that's going to make them. Um, have a valuable life and to engage in social interactions with other people that aren't driven just by worries about money or social status or whatever other, you know, limited goods we're going to have. I mean, it would be something I don't I, I don't envision a complete post scarcity society like we've been talking about, but I think we could get closer to it and that it would be better for people to have that flexibility. I, I also think maybe then people would be interested in studying stoicism not to like deal with how crappy their lives are uh and insulate themselves against <laughs> it but to to make genuine progress towards the human good you know um we should talk since we're bringing up practice we should talk about uh, a, a practice that we had in mind before we um jump yeah. into you know final thoughts so you you when we were talking about this before you had some worries about recommending an app as a practice. What, what, was, the, what was that worry?
So the idea is like if you are having something do it for you, you're automating your practices away, then are you actually working to improve yourself? And I think we kind of came to the conclusion that if you only and forever use that as a a crutch to do this, then that's probably not the way to go. But if we actually do recommend an app and it allows us to grow and as training wheels to be able to be more resilient, then that would be okay. Yeah. And so there's there's a lot of apps out there that are in one way or another oriented towards various um, practical philosophies. Stoicism has become quite popular. So there's some stoicism apps out there that'll give you like quotes and some meditation practices and allow you to do some journaling. And I'm always leery of those because I, I want to do things on my own. But but I think that, like you're saying, if you're if you're using it as a tool and you keep in mind that it is a tool and you use it to try to also grow your own self rather than just becoming more and more dependent on the app, it seems like it, that that's a good way to do things. And it could lead to personal growth, developing new habits. Um, maybe we could, with a social function, you could even say connecting up with other people who would support you in, in that work. Um, so I see a lot of potential there for intersection between what Foucault called the technology of the self, all these ways in which ancient philosophy would work on and, and redevelop the self towards you know genuine happiness, autonomy, all these things. And what we typically call technology, meaning external technology. I think those could work together well, but one would have to constantly be attentive and like assess every so often. Am I, am I getting too invested in the app? You know, am I too reliant on it? You know, what do you think? uh, I think that's a really good way to look at it. And so uh, one of the ones that I have is a, um, I, I tend to, read too much political news and there's so much of it and you can just kind of go what down i call the click hole and yeah. just constantly reading and reading and reading oh look there's a new link and um so i have a app on my phone i actually think it's built into the android system that uh makes it so you can't app open an app unless you go through some hoops basically and uh one of the hoops is that it it only gives you like 5 10 or 15 minutes to open the app and then it closes the app. And so it gives you a, a time to change your context. And so one of the things that we didn't quite get on to was the idea of infinite scroll and how yeah, this is yeah. a potential um, psychological trap because uh, there's no longer a point where you're changing to a new page. And that is usually a really good way for us to mentally break up uh, from one section to another, kind of like walking through a door in a house. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and and then move to a different context. Uh, it's funny, the context stretching is another term in, in computer science. Um, but... Uh, what does that mean? Let's, let's uh, take a little okay. detour into it. So uh, context switching is um, in uh, an operating system is the, the piece of program that allows for all the other programs to run okay. on top of it. And so each individual program thinks it has access to uh, the direct uh, computer, basically. Like, that's at least how it was originally set up. Okay. And and so um, it gets they get put into um, 
RAM memory, usable uh, volatile memory, and um, and they get paused, and then they switch to a different computer, uh, different um, application, and then that pauses, and it switches to another application. So that we application one, application two, application three, and that will switch back to the first one. The first one thinks that it's never stopped. It was like I'm continuously running. Um, because it doesn't have the ability to know anything outside of itself. The operating system is the thing that, that says you run and then you run and then you run, but it does it so fast at uh, <laughs> gigahertz, you know, uh, uh, millions of times per second. Yeah. Um, uh, sorry, billions of times per second. That it doesn't matter that these all these programs, you know, we have our, our video chat and we've got Audacity and whatnot all set up. That they all think that they're continually running and the operating system is constantly churning through um, to make sure that everything has uh, enough compute power in enough amount of time. And that's context switching. It's almost as if the operating system is dealing with a whole bunch of almost solipsistic narcissists. (laughs) Yes, absolutely. (laughs) That's interesting. So Um, how does that apply here? uh, Context switching. Context switching is like just uh, how we change what we are focused on. And so, you know, I'm focused right now really intently on this conversation with you and then a little bit on the, the timer over here counting down. Yeah. Uh, and, and going back to the idea of, of the actual practice is that um, this timer, this timeout allows us to stop. Um, and uh, allows us to back out out of our phones, which can be very addictive, and as, use that as training wheels to like, oh, I should only have be on my phone for maybe five or ten minutes at a time. If I'm hmm. sitting there for like an hour, then I've definitely been on this uh, device for much longer than the utility would actually dictate. Yeah. I mean, I, I like that idea because it means that there's a calling attention to the fact that we have a choice that we have some agency there. And agency is one of those things that unless we exercise it, we lose it. Right? Right. Yes. So, well, we're yeah. just about out of time. Um, any last thoughts that, that you have? We don't have, I don't think we have a, a final quote, although no. we, we could certainly I, talk about this danger of, you know, becoming the prey to our technology, you know, almost like yeah. a sorcerer's apprentice who starts up the magic and then it just takes off without them Uh, or in the words of Isaac Asimov any technology it's sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic Arthur C. Clarke oh yeah 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 well that's that's a fitting thing to go out on 